0: Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Welcome to Location Matters. My name's Sarah Butler, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Brendan Downs and Clinton Kimsing from the NGIS team. Now Clinton is based in Sydney, Brendan's in Perth, and the reason that they're here on the podcast today is we're going to be talking about what makes a great map, not from a GIS perspective, but from a developer's perspective. Because the way we see our developers in the team at NGIS is being a little bit like the glue in the business being able to take all sorts of different data sources and make sense of them and make them, you know, turn that into beautiful maps. So that's why I'm really amped that both of them can be here on the podcast today. And coincidentally, it's their first time on the podcast and they're doing it together. So welcome, Clinton. Welcome, Brendan. I'll start with you, Clinton. Would you like to just quickly introduce yourself to uh, our listeners?
1: Sure. Uh, hi, guys. Um, my name is Clinton. I'm the technical lead and senior software engineer for NGIS East Coast. I've been with the company for a little over three years now, um, but have been involved in GIS development for, for a lot longer. My career actually started off in the application development side of things. And at one point in time, I happened to join a GIS company that has been developing location-based solutions ever since.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And then, Brendan, you're in our Perth team. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Yeah, sure. Hey guys, my name's Brennan Downs. Uh, I'm a cloud architect at NGIS. I've been here for about a year and a half now. My background is actually in computer science, so I've I've got about uh, 18 years of experience um, across sort of software development and sort of solution uh, design. The last sort of five to seven years, I've I've been working more in the cloud space uh, and more in sort of the data engineering in world. And what's really great about working at NGIS is we get to combine the technologies in the cloud with with mapping and sort of combining the uh, sort of the cloud technology with maps for clients.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm really happy you're both here because I'll put my hand up and say that on the podcast, we really have a lot of GIS people come on, GIS technology providers that come on and talk about just the map side of things. But what we don't get into that often is the building blocks, I call them, of what makes a great map. And um, maps just, you know, dynamic maps especially, don't just appear. They take a lot of work and they take people like you guys to actually make sense of the data that's being handed to you in different data sources. On that note, I want to talk a little bit about what are the features of a great map in both of your opinions. We'll start with you, Clinton. What do you think makes a great
1: map? I think traditionally when people talk or think about maps, uh, we have this image of a flat um, image that suddenly changes. Um, and we are able to use it to get directions from point A to point B. In all honesty, that didn't really change even with the advent of digital maps and mobile devices and in car navigation. The only real change was that we were able to see maps in 3D. However, more recently we've begun to understand that maps, when coupled with important useful live data, be able to easily convey a wealth of location information and trends that would often be missed when just simply looking at a data spreadsheet. A good example of the implementation of this today, specifically in the transport industry, would be streaming data feeds from traffic and incident cameras, Bluetooth traffic beacons, aggregated data feeds from the likes of Google and Air Maps. And these are just the official data sources. Um, you could also then couple in unofficial feeds like open source platforms uh, where you could monitor for uh, incident reports um, from the general public. To me, I think. A great map forms when you're able to combine all of these data sources together to provide a wealth of location information so that you can visualize it. And the original reasons for looking at a map, namely for directions, takes on an entirely different meaning. The directions we're now able to obtain from maps is no longer simply get from point A to point B. Um, it's now a platform from which we can identify patterns and trends, make calculated predictions, initiate and activate responses based on the information shown on the map.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Brendan, you haven't been working in. I guess, the mapping space as long as maybe someone like Clinton has, but you've been working in software development for several years and sort of making your foray into the mapping world here at NGIS. Would you agree with that, with what Clinton said?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, the ability to, to get sort of fast time to insight with sort of the, the volume of data that's coming from the real world essentially, so the ability to take the data that's uh, represented on physical uh, devices out on the road, whether that's cameras or, or vehicle detectors, and being able to translate that into something visual on a map and almost sort of mirroring what's happening in the real world is really beneficial to, uh, to the end users. And I s- certainly think that some of the use cases are fairly time critical, whether it's to do with safety or um, sort of reacting to, to events and, and almost being predictive in some sense in the ability to make decisions and gain insights faster from the real world.
0: I think that something to to note is that when we see these beautiful dynamic maps and you see these huge dashboards in maybe some of the organisations that you guys have had the pleasure of working in, is that they don't just appear and the data that you're working with and having to make sense of, it's not just coming to you neatly wrapped up and packaged in a ribbon, like it doesn't just come in this one format, you guys are actually dealing with Probably up to hundreds of data sources coming in at varying speeds. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the um, the question of what real time actually means is uh, something that I that we always sort of challenge customers. uh, And it it definitely depends on the use case. You know, if it's if it's time critical and safety related, then then real time might might be in milliseconds. But if you're doing more sort of trend analysis, maybe maybe that's hourly or daily. Uh, So I think it really depends on the use case. But certainly um, the technology that exists today allows you to to stream what they call streaming sort of you know millions of records a second um, from from the physical devices that are out in the world and be able to to gain insights and make calculations on them on the fly which is really amazing.
0: Clinton you've probably been working on several projects at your time at NGIS where you're having to pull data from lots and lots of different places and start to make sense of it have you had that experience and what kind of data sources do you typically work with?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it basically comes down to the time on the fact that the quicker, more regularly one can obtain accurate data, the higher the standard of decision-making can be made. You take emergency services, for example, the quicker the reaction and response times, the more accurately, the more likely uh, there will be a positive outcome. Um, and when this is to deal with life and death situations, knowing traffic congestion in, in certain areas and um, incidents that are on, on a particular route and being able to make alternative arrangements to get around that are imperative, it literally means the difference between life and death. I think near real-time pipelines have introduced a further useful map factor, and that enables users to make calculated predictions and practically respond based on the stream of data coming in, as well as the history that we've collected over the period of time. To elaborate on this, it's a known issue that motorways in Australia can't be widened any further. These are in the major cities. As a result, the only way to alleviate traffic congestion is to properly manage and control it. This basically means that um, we have to rather control the influx of traffic from feeder uh, flows, which allows us to then manage how traffic congestion can flow through, through the city, for example.
0: Something I want to ask you guys about with the experience that you've had is, I guess when it comes to pulling all of these different data sources, I'm sure that they're living within like different teams and maybe sometimes different companies and organizations and maybe the... I guess the, the special thing about what you guys have to do is actually almost democratise that, that data and, and try and, you know, it's, it's one thing getting the data together, but it's actually getting people to buy into to what you guys are doing as well. Have you had an experience like that, Clinton, where you've had to sort of talk to different teams and maybe different providers and start to bring in data sources from all different sorts of areas?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's, I think that's the case on the majority of uh, projects. Um, Essentially, you've got data coming in from a number of different data sources. And I'm sure everybody just wants to be able to say, I want this specific data to appear. The truth is is that it isn't miraculously in that format. More often than not, these streams of data have a lot of noise in them, meaning there's a lot of um, information that isn't relevant to what we want to convey out to relevant stakeholders. And it has to go through a whole process of being cleansed As a result, this is what uh, the process, it has to go through a data pipeline. Um, And just to explain what a data pipeline is, uh, in a high level, uh, it's a series of processing steps that the data is passed through and output is obtained after processing has occurred on the data and this then gets used at the destination point. And more often than not, that that whole data processing is critically important to a successful uh, delivery of a solution.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that going back to... The comment around obtaining that data, I think that is also actually one of the biggest challenges is is getting getting the access to the data and I think that some organizations that are quite siloed you know they you know then sometimes actually do a lot of double handling um, so it's of our sort of uh, we advocate for trying to get as close to the source of truth as possible you know as, as reasonably so. The data that obviously can come from internal sources within the organization that's obviously private to that organization, thing, the data that they own and that they generate. Um, whether that's to do with uh, sort of state changes in the environment or whether it's to do with assets that are out in the physical world like uh, roads and cameras and things like that. The data could also be coming from external, so community-driven people like flagging incidents on roads on their phones or whatever um, when they're on out and about. And, of course, the data can be quite valuable. It could be in very good quality. It could be very noisy and very messy. And traditionally, being able to process and and sort of extract that data, transform that data... And, and gain insight from that data could be quite a slow process that takes quite a lot of computing power and you know, they call that sort of batch processing. Um, but the new, new sort of technology that exists today allows you to, to perform those transformations in the stream, so sort of on the fly, and so you can, can be kind of having that aggregated decision-making from that raw data trans, translated into uh, something that's more consumable by the end user on the fly, which is great.
0: Which leads us nicely into the data pipeline story. So, Clinton, you very kindly explained um, what a data pipeline is to us mere mortals who who don't necessarily double in that sort of technology from day to day. Um, but I know that there's a couple of different ways you could do data pipelines as well. There's uh, locally hosted and cloud-based. Can you explain that to us, Brendan?
2: Yeah, sure. I think uh, sort of building anything on the cloud comes down to some of the, the key kind of uh, pillars of uh, what makes the cloud great. Um, some of the cloud providers have a thing called a well-architected framework, and the sort of key pillars that they mention are things like performance, cost is a, is a main one. The other one is sort of manageability and maintainability, and which obviously c- comes back to matching with, I guess, the skill sets that are within your organisation to support this kind of solution. The other thing that cloud services provide is what they call a consumption model, which means you only pay for the services that you use. So with, when we talk about data pipelines and, and ingesting data from sort of IoT devices or sensors on roads, the, the the real world is very dynamic in nature in that, you know, there could be big events and spikes of things happening at peak periods uh, and there can also be times where there's not a lot happening. And so being able to be a little bit elastic in, in what you consume and be able to scale to meet uh, sort of rises in demand is really where the cloud is beneficial in, in that it allows you to not have to technically provision new hardware, but it also allows you to only pay for what you're using. So this is kind of the, I guess, the selling point of moving from an on-prem environment to a cloud environment. We do see that a lot of organisations are still in that kind of halfway zone. So they're the the cloud providers and you can read about all over on the blogs and what they announce is this kind of move to this uh, hybrid world where they, they don't necessarily require you to move and do a big bang approach and move to the cloud, but they allow you to play nicely with, your existing on-prem investment, but obviously move your greenfield implementations onto the cloud and have have things working um, in tandem.
0: So could you then explain to me um, the differences, so we've talked about locally hosted and cloud-based data pipelines, but I want to talk about the difference between static and dynamic maps. Can you explain that to us?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, so typically, uh, traditionally speaking, you might have maps that have very statically defined uh, points of interest uh, in nature. So you have things on maps that don't move around a lot in terms of this geographical space. But obviously with the, the sort of new technology that's out today, we can, we can sort of map things over time. So we have this uh, sort of another dimension. So we have the location, but we also have time. So things actually can change over time. So things like a road and a bridge... Uh, they don't necessarily move a lot. Obviously, if you build a new new infrastructure, then you are adding those things. But things like cars and pedestrians and weather, um, those things are always changing. So we're actually able to visualise this information on maps, sort of side by side. So you can have static information alongside dynamic information. And even those fixed uh, sort of assets that may be out there may change in terms of their state um, so you might have, uh, you know, traffic lights that have different flows. So you have a high flow or a low flow based on different periods. So they're fixed in geographical nature, but they're they're dynamic in the sense that they are changing in terms of some kind of property.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear about those different factors that maybe you can bring into the map that we probably wouldn't even think about that would be helpful. Seems like a good time as well to ask you, Clinton, about some of the project work that you guys have done over on the east coast when it comes to an example of a data pipeline that's been visualised on an up-to-date map. You guys did some work on WebTurf. Could you explain a little bit about that project and, and how this applies, this way of thinking and what we're talking about here applies to that project?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, as you mentioned, a large project that comes to mind is WebTurf. It's essentially an application that we developed to replace the existing transport from New South Wales incident reporting facility. Essentially, this particular project was designed to ingest incident data from Transport New South Wales's own incident management platform, as well as various Google services, namely aggregated congestion information, base map information, et cetera. To give an idea of how Google obtains and supplies this aggregated condition information, data is captured from location tracking information of people's mobile phones, which Google then applies algorithms to. They then analyze and extract aggregated traffic congestion information, which, um, with a certain level of certainty, they're able to supply congestion information to vendors. The team at NGIS managed to take this, this aggregated data and combine it with Transport NSW's own incident data and visualize it onto a map. Transport for New South Wales was then able to, by looking at the map, first of all, confirm incident locations by analyzing sudden congestion issues, record, capture and confirm traffic incidents and relate incident and related hazard information to the general public and transport stakeholders quickly and efficiently.
0: Nice. Bit of a game changer. I know that you guys have been working on WebTurf for a really long time too, yeah?
1: Yeah, it's been a few years in the making, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you guys have, I mean, probably less to do with data pipelines, but um, in terms of uh, digital transformation with spatial technology for for government departments on the East Coast, you guys have done some pretty cool stuff lately where you've been working with government departments who have been, you know, referring to these large folders and sort of binders with information and that – so we talk about static maps – a, a digital static map but you're I mean you guys over there you've been dealing with maps that are on paper in a folder on a shelf somewhere <laughs> and then actually bringing that to life and making it like digital and responsive and useful like some of the work at RMS
1: yeah that's correct as you can imagine RMS is heavily, rel- heavily reliant on mapping there were a number of divisions within RMS that still use paper-based maps to respond to things one such project that comes to mind is the m- implementation of incident response plans and getting the relevant council members, teams and police to locations in order to respond to an incident on a particular section of road. The legacy system meant that large manuals had to be printed for each party required to respond to the event or incident. If an incident response plan was ever changed or adjusted, the manuals had to be reprinted in the entirety. Things were highly inefficient, slow and often inaccurate. As a result, the digital solution we developed for this project consisted of an admin portal that would enable RMS to add, edit, or delete response plans as required. This was done graphically, indicating the exact locations on a map where people needed to be deployed to, as well as linking those locations to visible text-based instructions, which would describe where and what the people responsible had to do at these particular locations. This would then pass through a digital verification and acceptance process, which would then publish to the live database. The second part of this actual application was to, was to develop a map-based user application that would function on any device. The application had to cater for the fact that in some instances, you'd have connection to the internet, and in other instances, you'd be in areas that were dead zones, meaning that there was no internet available. As a result, the, and because the information could change at any point in time, the application had to upload those changes to the device as soon as possible. Um, when an internet connection was available. This meant that regardless of whether an internet connection was there or not, the user had the latest response information at any point in time. The benefit of this digitized interactive solution meant that um, time, effort, money, you could save that because you could easily publish new and adjusted response plans via the admin portal. The external users could then see those, those changes and response plans almost in a real-time situation, because it would automatically upload to their devices. And the, you would have a constant flow of information between the people responsible for recording how incidents should be responded to, and the people that were actually responding to those incidents. Another project that's probably worth mentioning is the toll calculation application, which enables the public users to input their source and destination locations for an intended road trip within New South Wales. The application makes use of multiple data sources, namely RMS's own information via Carto, um, live traffic information and images via the Live Traffic API, toll costing, turn by turn navigation, and routing via here maps. Based on the input variables uh, entered into the system, the system would be able to provide multiple route options, told and untold. It would be able to provide the toll costs, turn by turn navigation, cost breakdowns for the entire trip. And then you'd also be able to graphically represent the fastest routes on an interactive map that could be viewed on any device. As long as the internet could be accessed for these, for this particular application, um, this information was as up to date as possible.
0: Yeah. I think just hearing you say, um, that example on the emergency response made me think about something you said earlier on in the podcast where you said being able to access these data sources. And be able to process those as, as quickly as you can really is a difference between a life and death situation in many cases. And you know, it sounds like you guys have yeah worked with the public sector over there in New South Wales to, to really start to use maps and use maps in a, a smart way so that you know people are are genuinely better off. So that's pretty cool that you guys have been able to do that over the last couple of years. Brendan, I would love to have a chat to you about some of the different cloud providers, not in the sense of like, what's your favorite? Because I'm not going to ask you that question because I know that both you and Clinton will give me the same answer, which is it really depends on the client, right?
2: Yeah, that's very true.
0: (laughs) But I don't want to know that. I want to know more about like some of the different cloud providers that you've worked with. So, I know that you've worked across pretty much all three. Yeah, all
2: three main ones. Yep.
0: Yep. So, that's Google... AWS and Microsoft Azure. What are some of the, the features that you like about each of those cloud providers? Because I know that AWS, you'd be like, oh, I love that AWS does this thing when it comes to putting together that data pipeline. Or I love that Google is that they've got this part that Amazon doesn't have. What are some of the your favorite features across those platforms?
2: Yeah, I think what's really great is that we have we have the selection and the variety out there because they, they're actually competing with each other all the time. And it's it's a very, uh, it's an ever-changing environment. Um, so you'll see that that Google will, will provide something in terms of a data warehouse technology and then six months later, Amazon will come out with the same thing and then Microsoft will start something new and Amazon will compete with that. So it, it's actually really, really good for the community. Um, I know that people live in different camps. I know that there are some some regulatory and um, sort of agreements in place for, for preferred suppliers and things like that. So there's all ways that you always depend on the customers' existing investments and things like that, we are seeing a bit of a shift in, in the fact that customers are actually hedging their bets a little bit and moving into a, what they call a multi-cloud, uh, which means they use, they use services from different clouds. Particularly with uh, sort of the spatial processing and, and data pipelines, we want to know about things like data warehousing, um, data lakes, uh, streaming and processing of, of uh, data and also exposing that up to to maps. So we so APIs are quite a big one. So in, interoperability is, is huge and integration. So some of the, the really cool technologies we've seen out there, so BigQuery from Google is uh, kicking goals at the moment. So they've got quite a lot of um, facility to perform spatial uh, processing in the data warehouse alongside building and doing some uh, inference of machine learning models all within uh, a serverless data warehouse, which is fairly low cost and very highly performant. And then that's very, um, it's got a lot of integration points as well. So we have products like Karto, which can integrate into BigQuery quite natively. Also, you know, I've been doing quite a lot with Amazon. They've got uh, some really cool API technology. Uh, they've also got the similar machine learning technology. And uh, they've also, all the providers seem to, to be going with this open source uh, approach as well. So you'll have things that are in the open source community Things like Apache Spark and Apache Beam, which are technologies that allow you to do streaming data processing on the fly. So they build these kind of uh, fully managed services on top of these open source frameworks. So Amazon have things like Kinesis um, and Google have uh, something called Dataflow. So these are these kind of fully managed services which allow you to do this sort of high performance, high throughput data crunching on the fly. To get it from its source to to its destination which is essentially the map as fast as possible
1: to add to that the the benefit of these cloud providers is that all these services are actually developed and tested by these behemoth companies so as users of these systems we don't have to create these things from scratch essentially we know that because it's to a certain degree being released by by these companies, there is a certain amount of reliability that we can just hit the ground running using these actual uh, services. The other advantage is the fact that it's actually quite easily easy to scale um, up and down. So if you had the traditional old way of doing things where you had to have a server, limit, et cetera, you were limited by whatever your budget was in terms of what you could fit into your server room at that point in time. With these services just being a simple I need to add certain instances or further services. You basically just log into a cloud platform and um, through the console go uh, yeah add this or reduce that.
2: Yeah, and it really it really kind of advocates for experimentation as well. So you're allowed to try things out. You know, you, you might spend two days trialing something and then basically deleting it after two days, and it costs you fifty cents or a dollar. You know, that this is the kind of thing that's really great. Um, and back to what Clinton was saying about leveraging technologies that others are using these things are very well documented. So there's lots of case studies, there's lots of uh, documentation about how to use things and, and sort of quick start tutorials. So, you know, it's very easy to get going and to find out fairly early whether it's failed or whether it's been successful before you um, move on to a more full-blown deployment. So I think being able to assess feasibility is, is much easier than, than it used to be.
0: Do you find, do you guys find that when you are playing around doing this type of work, that your clients and people that you're working in partnership with are just amazed at the speed.
2: Uh, I think I get envious, to be honest. I have people that go, oh, you get to play with all the cool stuff.
0: <laughs> Less about the, oh, wow, yeah. you did that so quickly. That's amazing. Yeah, because that's something like Sam Atkinson and I talk about a lot on the podcast is like, especially when it comes to like remote sensing and earth observations work that they're doing is, is that what they constantly find is that people are just overwhelmed at like the speed in which he can do data processing Um, Like satellite imagery, for example, he said like he would say, you know, it used to take days, weeks to do that kind of stuff. And I just imagine that a lot of these organisations are just like, what, you just did that in like a day?
2: (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it comes back to a lot of, some people don't really know what's possible. Um, So one of the questions that, that I used to ask in my, you know, sort of consulting experience is what problem are you trying to solve? But it's actually shifted a little bit now to what would you love to be able to do? So it's actually both of those things.
0: I know, uh, Clinton, I was just going to say that um, Chris Haw, who you, you know and work with on, in your team, he's big on this, this discovery element.
1: Yeah, definitely. I um, think the fact that you can just simply scale things up and down, if you need to process a huge amount of data, you just basically say, I need uh, the largest instance um, available and it can fly through processing the data, whereas traditionally, we used to have a set server, um, and regardless of the data being large or small, that set server had to just cope. Now, we've got this data, you can add as much as you want to it and scale the instance up, and it just flies through everything.
0: Do you find yourself asking similar questions when you're doing a project that that Brendan just mentioned when you're working with different stakeholders about like, you know, what exactly are you trying to achieve here? What would you love to do? Do you, do you have the same sorts of conversations?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for me, a lot of the times the clients don't actually understand their own data at that point in time. Um, it's only when you start walking through the whole process of what is it that they, they're looking at what is it that they want to do and they start delving further into the information that they actually have um, that they start to pick up ah, oh, we can do a or we can we can provide B to the public um, the, once they begin to know what they actually is possible um, they start to add things to things
2: yeah that kind of lends its hand to um, what I like to call exploration through experimentation so sometimes if you go do a technical discovery with a customer you may ask them 20 questions and then you build a little proof of concept and a demo and you show that to them and then they have 50 more questions, um, which is actually normal and it's actually something that we welcome. You know, It's, it's very hard to know exactly what you want.
0: Wouldn't you rather have those questions asked and answered early on in the process? Like surely.
2: Yeah, but that's not the way it works. Yeah. It's not realistic. And so... I think that's a really good thing to be able to experiment fast and show something tangible to, to, to a business user that's not, you know may not be a technical person. And then they start to, the, the cogs start to tick and then you start extracting a little bit, um, a little bit more conversation and I think it, that sort of benefits the, the whole project in the end. Obviously,
1: you try and ask as many questions up front as possible to try and get the basis of what um, needs to be done. But essentially, what generally happens more often than not is when the client starts to see the actual uh, fruition of the, the project, um, they go, oh, it can do this, and oh, I can add that. And the list tends to go on and on. Um, that leads to scope creep. <laughs> um, and more often than not, we have to manage that quite stringently. But, yeah. What it, did you call that? Scope? scope creep. Scope creep. Scope creep. Yeah. I've never yeah. heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, and essentially, it's the management of that and... The realisation that, okay, in phase two, we can add more features to things becomes something that uh, the client actually starts to look forward to.
0: Here's a bit of a a finishing question, just because I'm interested. If you could give advice to some, some budding developers who are sort of making their way up in the world and starting to do the sorts of amazing big projects that you guys are working on, what advice would you give them? In terms of learning, like where can they go? What resources could they see? What kind of learning would you encourage them to, to go and do?
2: I think there's, there's a huge amount of uh, open data sets out there that are publicly available. Um, so you can sort of pick any industry or any interest that you may have. And I bet you there's an open data source for it. So if you want to do weather or you want to do tracking planes flying around, you want to track ships flying around the ocean – you can find an open data set for it and usually the cloud providers provide you with a bit of free credit so you can sort of, I think they usually give you about $200 of free services so you can start to um, to experiment and play around. So yeah, if you've got a hobby or an interest, um, you know, you can go and create things for a relatively cheap price, you know, if not free.
0: Cool. Clinton, any tips for any um, developers that might be listening that are maybe just leaving uni for example?
1: Um, I, I tend to agree with Brennan. Um, it's the fact that any idea that you possibly have, go and play around with the actual uh, services available, as was mentioned, they, they generally are free to start off with. And if you hit an idea that tends to take off, who knows where it could lead to. it's
0: right, really, really good tips. And uh, what we're going to do is actually put in the show notes some links um, to some developer starter resources across some of the different cloud platforms. Um, including information about how you can access those credits and maybe what you've got to do. We've got a couple of blogs on that actually on the NGIS website about how to access Google's free credit tier, for example, on the Google Cloud platform. So at least we can start there. We'll link you to some of those resources. Um, and don't forget that if you are listening and you want to know more about this and maybe want to ask some questions, like you can go find Clinton and Brendan on LinkedIn and I'm sure that they'll be cool with that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we hope that you feel inspired by listening to what we talked about today, especially if you're in an organization that might be starting to think about what you can do in this space. I think one of the great things about working with guys like Clinton and Brendan is that they can help you get those ideas and and turn them into tangible outcomes. So they're very talented and really, really thrilled that they could be here with us today. So guys, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thanks. It's yeah, it's thanks been it's been good. It's been nice and refreshing, actually, to have a different perspective on the podcast about how to pull together these amazing um, mapping resources. Uh, really appreciate both of your time. If anyone's listening for the first time, don't forget that you can subscribe to Location Matters and get these episodes every week. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.